From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Well, hello there. I'm Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett. Today, you can always reach me. I want to make sure you know how. Jody at cknw.com. That's Jody with a Y at cknw.com. We're going to have lots of time for open phones today on the program because we've got a lot of heady topics, many, if not all of them, very, very local, hyper local, in fact. The one that keeps coming back to the top of our conversation is that of Blair Donnelly, the the man who was released from a forensic psychiatric hospital in Coquitlam after not one offense in murdering his 16-year-old daughter in 2006, nor stabbing his good friend in 2009, but received another day pass and attacked three people, two in their 60s, a couple in their 60s, and and a young woman in her 20s at the Light Up Chinatown event on Sunday. We've talked this through quite a bit uh, over the last 36, 48 hours here on CKNW. Yesterday at this time, I had Mayor Brad West on the program. Mayor West, uh, like the Premier, Premier David Eby, saying he was white, hot, angry yesterday, Mayor Brad West did not mince words about his frustration. Here's revisiting that. Have a listen. You know, they try to come together and have a real positive event and bring community and, and people together to celebrate something positive. And then, and then this happens, the un, unthinkable. And as I learned more about the individual and the circumstances in the background, uh, I got pissed off, quite frankly, because uh, this is not an exception, unfortunately. This is, this is our system at work. Or failing. Right. It, it's something that we're all feeling across Metro Vancouver, across British Columbia. Public safety is an issue. We're feeling it viscerally. So it's not a rare incident. That is a huge problem for society, for community, for building that community. And we want to talk through how this happened. What does it mean to be not criminally responsible? Many assume that this is a justice system problem, right? Failure to find justice for the victims in these crimes. And yet being found not criminally responsible has one designated to a psychiatric hospital like the one in Coquitlam where Blair Donnelly was uh, was being held uh, and, and, and cared for treated, one would hope, and yet the day passed that saw him reoffend, And we wanted to talk through how this perhaps is not really a criminal justice issue, but it certainly is an issue. So we're bringing in a good friend of the program, Sarah Lehman, a lawyer with the Sarah Lehman Law Group, joins me on the line. Sarah, thank you for taking some time today. Thank you for having me on. Can you help us understand in, in layperson's terms because um, one might would assume that somebody who who commits murder murders their daughter uh, and then has not one but two unprovoked attacks on their record in subsequent day passes from the the psychiatric uh, facility that uh, would be a a justice system fail but this from the legal perspective perspective what actually are we looking at here Okay, so when a person is found not to be criminally responsible for an offense, they aren't put into jail. Rather, they're put into a psychiatric hospital. And they fall under the jurisdiction then of the BC Review Board here in British Columbia. Now, this is an independent tribunal that is set up 
under the Criminal Code of Canada. So it does involve the justice system. The Criminal Code of Canada governs this. It provides for the review board, which functions at the same level as the B.C. Supreme Court. Okay, and they are responsible for protecting the rights of people who are found not to be criminally responsible for a crime or unfit to stand trial, for example, but they are also responsible for protecting the public and making sure that we have proper safeguards in place to allow for the rehabilitation and ultimately, hopefully, the reintegration of these individuals into society. So that's how this is all connected to the criminal justice system. Okay, so it feels like it is part of it when you say that this provincial review board sits at about the same level as the B.C. Supreme Court in terms of what their power might be to to impact someone's life. Yes, this is an independent board and they are tasked with conducting periodic evaluations of people who are being held in various psychiatric facilities for the reason that they are either unfit to stand trial or criminally not responsible for uh, an action that they've undertaken in the past. Okay, so one of the things that Mayor Brad West said yesterday here at this time on the program, he said, you know what, I looked into who sits on this provincial review boards and and he said something like they all have sterling records and, and are are certainly qualified to, to have this role. So with that in mind, how do we find ourselves in a position, what's broken in whatever we want to call the system, justice system, um, mental health and wellness, psychiatric system, what, whatever that might be, because it's the, the lives are being held in the hands of these of these people on this provincial board. Uh, is that where the uh, blames the wrong word? Is that where the breakdown must be? Is there a mandate? As we often hear people complain about the mandate of catch and release when the police pick up a repeat offender, uh, hold them for charges and the Crown says no charges, they must be released on bail for, to, to come in at a later date and then they reoffend again. That frustration, that wheel of frustration that leaves people feeling unsafe in our communities. Um, where's the breakdown in all of this, do you think? Well, it's difficult to say where the breakdown is uh, in this case specifically. Um, What's important to keep in mind is that the review board considers countless cases uh, throughout the year. And this is a regular function of the review board. In fact, it's really one of the only um, functions it has. Um, Generally speaking, the review board consists of panels of three people. And typically, the chair of that person is either a judge or a person who's qualified to be a judge, which in other words, is a person who has at least 10 years experience uh, being a lawyer. Um, They will consider so many different reports. Uh, They are uh, a body that has some investigatory powers and they have to consider all of the relevant evidence that's before them, including victim impact statements, for example, uh, medical records, uh, psychiatric reports, um, the list goes on and on. So there's really uh, a lot of evidence that they have available to them in making these considerations. And they have broad powers to make uh, particular findings as well, from keeping a person in custody fully to conditionally releasing them, to releasing them altogether back into the community. So there's quite a bit of discretion. And this really is, at least on the face of it, a very thorough and independent process that happens at regular intervals. So it's hard to say where the breakdown happened here, um, but uh, it seems as though this is something that is very, very um, serious and something that uh, is not undertaken with any, um, you know, uh, lightness, if I could put it that way. No, 
Certainly not. I mean, it's definitely garnering the attention um, of of many. It seems as though uh, something broke down along the way, whether it be having a day pass but not having the proper supervision or having somebody who would know um, how to to help this individual who might be um, still incredibly ill clearly mm-hmm. in 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 the events that took place on Sunday when one is fairly safe to assume that that uh, this individual is unwell and remains so so now back in the psychiatric uh, designation will undergo another assessment to see if then he's fit to be tried on this random attack on these three people is that what's next legally I expect so. So the interesting thing about this case is that this individual, Mr. Donnelly, was found not to be criminally responsible in relation to the second degree murder of his own child back in 2006, uh, but was found to be criminally responsible in relation to stabbing his friend in about 2009. Um, So here, I expect that he will have to go uh, undergo another fitness assessment to see uh, what his psychiatric status is at this point, uh, whether or not uh, he has any idea of right versus wrong or can understand the consequences of his actions. Um, So I think that would probably be the first step here in determining what's going to happen to Mr. Donnelly next. Uh, But uh, it's safe to say that he will remain under psychiatric hold and uh, will not have any further uh, ability to visit the community, at least one would hope, given what's unfolded here most recently. Yeah. Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett. We're continuing our discussion with Sarah Lehman of the Sarah Lehman Law Group. And and Sarah, prior to the break, I was saying that when the Vancouver police chief stepped to the microphone before charges had been approved by Crown Council, he had said, Chief Adam Palmer had said, we, VPD does not have a flag on this individual, but he is known to police outside of Vancouver. And we'll get more into that once charges, we can identify him once charges have been approved. Why would there be no flag on this person who has this level of, um, I don't want to say record, because technically I guess he doesn't have a record other than uh, being committed to a forensic psych. A psychiatric hospital in Coquitlam uh, as of 2006. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to say why it is that the VPD had no prior knowledge of him. Um, there are a number of different databases that police forces use in Canada in order to share information with members in the same department, as well as externally with other police forces. Um, the national database that's usually used is called the Canadian Police Information Centre. Um, and typically that will hold information about, say, stolen vehicles, warrants, missing persons things like that. Um, it may be that the information related to this individual never uh, made it onto that system and rather was just being used in more local uh, database systems, which is why the VPD didn't have any record of him. But it's impossible for us to say definitively uh, what went wrong there. Mm-hmm. I know I keep sweeping you into the corner here. Obviously, if you had all the answers, uh, you'd be screaming them from the rooftops at this time. It's just trying to, you know, pick your brain about how the system works because it's much more complex. This is not a, a CSI Miami episode. This is not as simple as, as how a crime show unfolds on our TV sets. This is The system is far more complex. If there was one thing that you could point to that you say, hey, you know, if I had the conch, if I could say it might be better if this changed, do you have a perspective on that? Well, I think that the most important thing here is to make sure that the process for reevaluating people who have been committed to psychiatric centers is 
as good as we can possibly get it. Now, it's never going to be perfect. Nothing is perfect. Um, But we need to have appropriate safeguards in place to ensure that where a person has demonstrated a propensity for violence and reoffending in a very violent manner, um, we can't just... Uh, you know, allow them to move through the system um, in a normal course. I think that it's very important for those things to be considered at the forefront uh, when we're discussing anything to do with community release or even unsupervised or supervised community visits. Where there is a potential threat to public safety, that does need to be taken as paramount in my view. I love that. Thank you for that, Sarah. Um, It's a tough question to answer, but I mean, I think we can all agree that having some guardrails, as you said, put in place, or perhaps Mm -hmm. because we have seen society change so much over the last number of years, people are are far more stressed and perhaps feeling the impacts of of mental illness even more so. What is the criteria for being appointed to or being a part of a provincial review board? Is there a process that one goes through to be a part of it? Does it change over regularly? And is it directed by the provincial government or by the federal government? So this is a board that is created by virtue of the Criminal Code of Canada, which is a federal piece of legislation. Each province, to my understanding, implements it a little bit differently because they do have provincial discretion. Now, here in BC, the panel usually consists of three people, and one of those people needs to have the qualifications of a judge in this province, as I previously mentioned. Um, So what that means is that they either need to be a judge or else they have to have at least 10 years experience of being a lawyer. I expect that other members of the panel would be people who must have some background in at least social work. Uh, They may also be psychiatrists, doctors, um, people who have some experience in the criminal justice system and also in psychiatric issues. Uh, But they are also listening to the evidence and the reports of a variety of community members, including doctors, lawyers, um, and people who work with these individuals on a day-to-day basis in the psychiatric facilities where they are being treated. Would these reviews of individuals such as Blair Donnelly, would those these reviews be um, FOIable? Would Freedom of Information Act be... Um... Would they, would they be available or are they done, you know, under lock and key and closed and sealed? So the decisions of the BC Review Board are written down. So these will be written decisions that they are to produce at the end of any uh, type of hearing. Um, now, in terms of the information that could be available publicly, I think that that would have to be determined on a case-by-case basis. Of course, FOI legislation has, yes, all kinds of safeguards worked in there to make sure that privacy is not breached. And these are highly sensitive matters. So uh, I expect that each application would be appropriately vetted in order to preclude that information from being uh, made uh, publicly available. Right. The redactions would be thick. All right, Sarah, thank you so much for allowing me to pick your brain for the last half an hour. I really appreciate your time. No problem. My pleasure. Jody Vance in for Jill today. Glad to connect with a good friend, Claire Newell. Of course, we all want a holiday. Madonna's singing it right there, Claire. Everybody's, you know, back to school, (laughs) back to work, dreaming of the next vacation. And certainly Travel Best Bets is our destination. But Claire, we have to start today before we get to actually dreaming of travel, talking about the realities in Morocco. 
Yeah, it's so nice to talk to you, Jody. But uh, starting with some pretty heavy stuff, um, yeah. the uh, the Morocco earthquake was really devastating. It happened six days ago, so um, on Friday of last week, September the eighth. At uh, last count, it was almost three thousand people who have been killed, um, and about mm-hmm. fifty six hundred people who've been injured. Many, many have been critically injured. In fact, the numbers are so high, uh, according to the World Health Organization, more than 300,000 people have actually been affected by the disaster. Now, this is a place, Jody, that lots of people have on their bucket list, uh, um, yeah. going to Morocco and seeing all of the... Uh, it, it's such a, an amazing culture, but it, this is a, a place that really depends on tourism. And so yeah. I've had a lot of people reach out to me, and there are you know, we we ourselves have probably 50 people who are on vacation there, and every tour operator is handling it differently. There's been very few cancellation. Um, uh, one of the things that came out was a statement by Intrepid's, which is a, a tour operator's, uh, their managing director, who's actually based in Morocco, and said he said that um, our teams and suppliers say that the best thing people can do to support the local communities is to continue to travel to Morocco while avoiding, of course, the most impacted areas, which were in the high Atlas Mountains. Um, the country will need tourism more than ever as it rebuilds. And I think to myself as I listen, um, the this country is caught between the desire to mourn the losses of friends and family yeah. and the need for economic survival uh, on a traditional tourism business. I mean, that's it, that's what it's known for. But it just reminds me of what's happened five weeks ago in Maui. And yeah, it does take us we, right there, doesn't it? I mean, as yeah. regular Maui visitors, we, we were hearing, please don't come. And now we're hearing, please come. We need you. Yeah. We need you to come. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the case. In fact, I wish I, I should share it with you and then maybe you can post it. Um, and when CKNW, you can put it up. But I think sometimes pictures, though, show and explain things better than words. But after the devastation there, the, there were such mass cancellations. It caused a lot of airlines to drop flights. I mean, we're talking like half the schedule of United and um, WestJet and Air Canada canceled flights through September. But um, the pictures that I saw on the Instagram posts were of the Fairmont Kehlani, which is located in South Maui, which wasn't Beautiful. affected. But of course, people were worried that the, yeah. the residents may need to be housed there. The, the pictures were empty parking lots, empty pools, oh, no. um, mm. empty restaurants. That hotel alone employs 600 people. And so right. it's, uh, it, people are really worried. So yeah, uh, I think it was yesterday or maybe the day before, <coughs> excuse me, the governor, Josh Green of Maui, who, um, made an address said that West Maui. So this is the area west of Lahaina. So places that you would know, Kaanapali, Napili, Ka- uh, Kapalua. They are going to fully reopen as of Sunday, October the 8th. That will be two months after um, the August 8th wildfires that destroyed Lahaina. Lahaina itself is going to remain fully closed to the public until yeah. further notice. Now we will tell us when it's time to, to visit that area, but they're they're really imploring people not to be discouraged or reluctant to go support those local businesses and the workers that rely on tourism in West Maui, really all of Maui for their family's livelihood. You know, it just breaks my heart when you said Keolani that I had my honeymoon there. 
uh, back in 2003. I did. My parents lived in Maialea Bay and we, uh, Maialea. <laughs> Technically, oh. if you can, I know. So we were on yeah. the, the east side of Maui. For the last 40 years, my family's been a resident there, Kamaina. And so we were able to go and, and, and spend time at the Kailani, which is, I mean, it's, it's the White Lotus, frankly. It's, so White, was, Lotus. The, it's White, White Lotus. It's White Lotus. That's the White Lotus. It's the hotel that was White Lotus. Like, legitimately, I remember watching that uh, binge watching white lotus and saying okay they're saying that's evening that's not right because that's not where the sun rises that's where it sets that's you know (laughs) it was the continuity so if you go and visit i mean for whatever your reason might be even if you stay in an airbnb and then you you can go for the day to the keilani and support those workers there as well because it is a very obviously it's a dream destination for so many of us uh affordability wise why leia is uh, you know five star if there are more stars to be handed out but Oh, gosh, Claire, it's one of those things. If they're asking us to come back, let's. Yes, I totally agree. And I know that there were people who were um, reaching out to me who had trips planned in October and even into November, even Christmas time, saying, should I cancel? And no, please don't cancel. Um, don't respectfully cancel. go and support yes. the, the tourism industry there. They're, they're really desperate for it. People are losing their jobs because the restaurants and the hotels aren't full. They're, there's nobody there. The pictures that I sent you of Kehlani, you're, you're going to be shocked. Anyway, um, let's get on to something a little bit later because it's just yes, so please, heavy. Please, please, please. Okay, actually, it's something breaking that is not even on the notes I sent to you. Okay, Disneyland. tell me, tell me, tell me. I don't know whether it's good or bad. I kind of think it's good. But Disneyland offering alcoholic beverage is at an expanded list of restaurants. Claire, that's starting good. Starting this Claire, week. That is, that is good. <laughs> I don't know whether you, you don't want many, um, you know, drunk, belligerent people around Disneyland because no, no. there's kids everywhere. Um, but if you are just, res- yeah, responsibly. So River beer. Bell Terrace. Yeah, be- beer a little between, beer. Beer between my Star Wars experience. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Just helps you endure the lineups a little bit better. Um, For sure. There are three places. So Riverbell Terrace, Cafe Orleans, and um, Carnation Cafe. They've been really slow at adding alcoholic beverages to the menu. Um, it was before this, you would have to go over to uh, Disney California Adventure Park or go to downtown Disney. So I think that there's a lot of people who will actually think this is really great news. Um, other thing that's great news is that West You don't Gen- have to partake if you don't like it. No. If you don't want to. I, I'm sure Disney no. will have a handle on the, on the people that might not follow being responsible there. They're very good at that. Oh, they are. It's just that silent tap on the shoulder, get out yes. kind of no. <laughs> Sorry, you're going it. to have to leave. Okay, give us some other deals here, Claire. Um, well, can I tell you quickly about WestJet announcing service oh, yeah. between Kelowna and Vegas? This is really, it's a coveted trans-border route from the Okanagan. Um, hasn't been around since 2020, but it's back beginning December the 15th, and it's going to operate nonstop twice a week between Kelowna and Vegas. So a lot of people like that. Um, do you want some deals? That's what yes, you're looking please. for? Yes, please. please okay. Please. Um, Puerto Vallarta, they just dropped the price on this. So November the 16th through until December the 11th, airfare and seven nights in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort, 739 The taxes are almost the same, 630 but it's a heck of a deal if you can do it. That's and there are actually deals that are uh, available into January and February for not much more if that's the time period that you really like. Um, really early sail on a 14-night Mediterranean cruise. It visits amazing ports in Italy, Spain, Greece, but it also taps into Valletta, Malta, 
and it's a 14-night cruise on June 3rd that comes with a 200 US dollar onboard credit. I've listed nice. the the ports of call for you. They're unbelievable like Mykonos and Nice and Santorini Barcelona, anyway. Yeah. Right? It's so nice. Mm. Um so you'll have to check online for if, if you're listening, but it's 1449 for the 14 night cruise with that 200 US dollar onboard credit, 268 tax. Not um bad. No, That's I not know bad at all. 14 nights? Come on. Yeah. It's like okay. 100 bucks a day. I thought it was yeah. pretty good. Um, especially at that time of the year in June. It's a yeah. nice time before kids get out Shoulder. of school, but the weather's still good. Yeah. Um, Iceland. This I thought I would share because it's a, it is a bucket list destination for a lot of people. They call it the glaciers, waterfalls, and hot springs trip. And you can do this pretty much most of next year, January 16th through until December the 9th. I wanted to share it now because it has to be booked by September 30th to get the rate. It's oh, okay. air, airfare included, six okay. nights hotel, breakfast every day, all of the sightseeing, transfers, plus premium care travel protection, which is a type of insurance, Twenty nine thirty nine tax included. I just have to tell you what this was wow. and we'll go That's back to. cheap for Iceland. Holy. Almost. It was almost 5,800 bucks. So it's way cheaper. It's a really good wow. buy. Nice one, Claire yeah. Newell. I love this. So Travel Best <laughs> Bets is where we find these deals and more. As always, it's always great to chat with you, Claire. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Jody. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. We're going back to Surrey. Yes, we are. This story uh, really kicked off on Monday. Monday was when Surrey City Council reconvened after six weeks hiatus. And certainly on the agenda was the transition from Surrey RCMP to the municipal police, the Surrey Police Services. And we had uh, Councillor Linda Annis on this program, and Linda Annis, the councillor, was was calling pre pre council meeting was calling for the mayor to move things forward. This has to happen as mandated by the province. Well, following the Jill Bennett show from noon till three, uh, the Jazz Joe Hall show came on, and Brenda Locke, the mayor of Surrey, was on with Jazz, and here's what Mayor Locke said about why things are stalled. We're not very far, <laughs> sadly. We haven't uh, seen a lot of progress forward, and uh, that's, been, that's been disappointing. You know, there's been enormous challenges for us at the city, and uh, I think the biggest one is that we don't have a clear path forward from the province. The RCMP, the SPS, and I can tell you the city of Surrey have been asking for that plan, but we all have no plan, no path forward. So no path forward, and then talked about the cost of transition, the cost on taxpayers. Listen to this. You know, I, I can't really answer that. Um, what I can tell you, though, is that this is a generational decision. And so we know that um, it's going to be more than 30. We expect it's going to be closer to 40 or $50 million more, the Delta, every single year. And when you start to compound that, and that's on the operational side, that gets very scary. But that doesn't take into uh, consideration any of uh, the capital costs that you're talking about because those are also extraordinary. IT, you're right, is, is very expensive, but there's lots of other um, issues. And we haven't seen those budgets come from the uh, 
Surrey Police Service to know exactly what they're looking for at this point. A lot of uh, lobbed accusations within some of those words there, saying no plan, haven't seen, don't know. Some some have said, uh, we had Jack Hundile, former city councillor in Surrey, on the program yesterday, and he said uh, that he had heard that there had been some six letters written from Mayor Brenda Locke to the Solicitor General, the, the Minister of Public Safety, Mike Farnworth, asking for the plan. It seems from a layperson's point of view that it, it seems unreal that there is no plan. Certainly people are working from a plan. There are, there's a, actually a police board in Surrey that I'm sure you're aware of. Today, earlier today, we received a release from the Surrey Police Board saying that the Surrey Police Board wishes to express significant concerns over public comments made by Surrey Mayor and Chair of the Police Board, Brenda Locke, on Tuesday, yesterday, on September the 12th. Uh, So now we want to welcome the Executive Director of the Surrey Police Board, Melissa Granham, is our guest. Thank you for doing this, Melissa. You're welcome, Jody. Let's talk through these concerns. Uh, Reading through this release, it is very firm in its tone. Yes, it is. And and it was important for the board that we put this out because they have worked exceptionally hard over the past three years in achieving the stated mandates of provincial government. Uh, We're also very proud of the work of our chief, and we believe he's continued to navigate this transition exceptionally well. And and the work he's accomplished to date uh, can't be underestimated. You know, he's got uh, over 400 sworn and civilian staff. We've deployed over 200 police officers into the city of Surrey to serve residents. Uh, He's navigated the complex jurisdictional and systemic issues facing this historic transition. So the work to date uh, has has been um, well done. And and I believe that, you know, the minister, when he made his final statement on the decision to continue on with Surrey Police Service, was that SPS is the safe path forward. And I believe that Chief Lipinski's work is reflected in that comment. So when you hear Surrey's mayor say there is no plan and we have no way forward, if do, does it, I mean, it has to be stressful. Delays are stressful and costly. They are. They are stressful and costly. And, and I do actually want to talk a little bit about the narrative that there is no plan. So there are multiple avenues of planning that have gone on in this project. So to just give you some examples, we have the human resources plan that since the election, uh, we did pause a lot of what we were doing and that plan did expire and it needs to be renewed. And that's what dictates uh, the number of Surrey Police Service officers being deployed into the RCMP and the number of demobilization uh, numbers for the RCMP as well. We also have a team at SPS who's working on uh, achieving the requirements of the provincial government to get to police of jurisdiction. So there are a number of BC provincial policing standards that SPS has to meet, and we have a team who are working on that on a daily basis and in conjunction and collaboration with the province. We also have, uh, before the election, we had uh, working groups who were reporting up to the Trilateral Committee on asset transfer, IT development, file and exhibit transfer. And where it gets com- complicated here is that these are multi-jurisdictional. So, for example, asset transfer is between Canada and Surrey. Uh, the IT development is between the City of Surrey and the Surrey Police Service. File and exhibit transfer is between Surrey Police Service and the RCMP. So all of these things require collaboration, and they all have their own unique jurisdictional issues. So, um, you know, having all of these working groups cease to function until, you know, there was a firm decision by the minister, we now have to get back to that work. And, and the board in particular, and I can only speak for the board, is, is incredibly eager to get back to that work because, and I think everybody can agree uh, that we need to get this completed because it, it is very expensive to sit in limbo like this. 
it is, as you say, a multi-party plan that that requires collaboration. From the perspective of the Surrey Police Board, how collaborate, how collaborative have the RCMP been with SPS? Well, we we understand from the chief that the RCMP, you know, they have their legislation that they follow. Uh, They are in charge of policing in Surrey and they um, take that responsibility very seriously. And so until we can get to a point where all of these different uh, multi uh, area, multi plans uh, can start coming together and converge. Uh, you know, it's it's difficult for all parties. And, and I can understand the RCMP wanting to ensure that uh, public safety is not put at risk. And the SPS is very confident that they can start taking over policing in the city at some point without uh, public safety being at risk. So that that being sort of the core fundamental piece, uh, everybody wants to ensure that we can move forward that way. So it, it has been challenging. And, and like I said, it's multi-jurisdictional and we all have our own um legislation that we have to deal with. We have uh, provincial legislation and we have federal legislation around the RCMP. So uh, it, but what that leads to is the fact that we need to get back to the table and, and start in earnest uh, working on these plans. Uh, fair, fair enough that there are a lot of moving parts here and a lot of uh, uh, rules to follow within this transition that that could come in conflict with one another. But certainly public safety being at the fore and the cost to taxpayer. Before I take a quick break here, Melissa, thank you again for staying for a second segment because I have a million questions for you. I did get a text oh, from a listener. Thank you. Um, a listener said, Jody, in advance of your discussion regarding the SPS, RCMP, and the supposed extra $266,000 a day cost being incurred, I'd like to know what that number is comprised of. For example, the SPS is short hundreds of officers, the RCMP short also, but the total of, of both required number of officers, does this dollar value include RCMP officers' charges as well, the cost for duplicate administration? What What is that extra $8 million a month Um, Would that go away if we started moving this process forward in a more expedited fashion, I guess, is his question. Right. So I I can speak uh, to the board's budget and to the spending of the police board. Um, So the caveat here when I try to answer this question for you and your listener is that uh, my knowledge is that of the police board. So he or she is correct that in the uh, in the overall eight million dollars per month, that that estimate of what's being spent is correct that there's two administrations, there's two police overheads. You know, we have two executive teams and, you know, we have 300 over 330 police officers at this point. So we do require administrative functions around training, professional standards, human resources, all of those things that go into a regular police service, uh, as does the RCMP. So uh, having this in limbo um, makes it that expensive. And the sooner that we can get to um, SPS taking over police of jurisdiction and, and demobilizing that administrative side of the RCMP, we will have these costs. And that's, that's why I, I am pretty confident I can say that we all agree that we need to move this forward as uh, safely and expeditiously as possible. I'm Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett, continuing our chat with Melissa Granham, the executive director of the Surrey Police Board. And Melissa, prior to the break, we were talking about the delays here, the transition, the costs associated with it, and how uh, the mayor of Surrey um, is is framing where we are today and what needs to happen moving forward. The Surrey Police Board put out a release today uh, sharing concerns over public comments made by Surrey Mayor and Chair of the Police Board, Brenda Locke. Was, was there one comment in particular that the mayor uh, said that, that sparked this? Or is, has this been a buildup of, of just how we've seen this process unfold in recent 
uh, weeks? Well, I think it was the was the comment around um, faith and and um, confidence in both the board and Chief Lipinski, and and I think for the sake of uh, the residents of Surrey, it's important to understand that the board has and ha- remains to have uh, a great deal of confidence in the work of the chief. Uh, he has done exceptional work under what can be very challenging circumstances within this project. So uh, it, it really was just our need, uh, our belief that we needed to stand up and, and defend the work that he's doing. So moving forward, what would the board like the, the next first best step to be? So from the perspective of the board, and as we talked about the multi-jurisdictional issues that are involved in this project, so our role is to ensure the chief has the tools and resources he requires to do his job. So our next big focus uh, is the 2024 budget. And what's important in order for us to develop that budget is to understand the hiring cadence, the speed at which both the province and the city are comfortable with us progressing this transition. You know, if, if we could if we could do this job in a vacuum, we could easily have it accomplished in a year, 18 months. But we recognize that there's, again, a lot of jurisdictions, there's a lot of pieces of legislation, there's uh, multiple agreements and uh, legal frameworks in place to get us there. So the reality is, is that we have to focus on, like I said, giving Chief Lipinski what he needs to do his job. And, and that starts with a budget for 2024. Right. And so SPS vehicles, those logos, logoed vehicles that we've seen and, and the, the new recruits and, and what have you, are, are, are they being deployed now? Are those because there was some discussion that the, the RCMP were saying that it would be too confusing for the, the city, the citizens of Surrey to see SPS vehicles as well as RCMP vehicles not really understanding who would be in charge. Right. So, so again, that's part of the planning that needed to come back to the table to ensure that we can get our resources out there. We do have vehicles. They are assets of the city of Surrey and they should be used. Um, you know, in any jurisdiction, uh, you'll see different police agencies uh, in those jurisdictions because they're doing police work. You'll see the transit police. You'll see a Delta police vehicle in Surrey. Uh, you'll see sure. an RCMP vehicle in Abbotsford. So I don't think the public would be confused by that. But again, it, needs, it goes back to that particular working group uh, when it it comes to assets and uh, what assets the RCMP will allow into their detachments based on, you know, Treasury Board at the federal level, the RCMP Act. So there's so many different aspects to it that we have to hammer out in order to get those vehicles on the road. And again, you know, we've got these assets sitting in the city and I think for everybody's benefit, we should be using them. Yeah, collaboratively, as you mentioned in, mm-hmm. in your letter, is that needing everybody to come to the table SPS, Board, City of Surrey, RCMP, all senior levels of provincial and federal governments in order to renegotiate these new plans. Is there a timeline on that? I don't have one. I'm not from no. aware of one. I think it requires, uh, again, those levels of government to get together and decide how quickly they want this to happen um, and then give us our marching orders. Essentially, the board and, and uh, the chief constable, you know, we're at the at the behest of government. So the, the board mm-hmm. takes its marching orders, its mandate from provincial government and and the provincial government, the minister will tell us what to do and we'll follow those those directions. So uh, once we have a sense of what we're going to do, again, our focus would be giving the, the chief his tools and resources that he requires to do the job. And that really is summarized here in this final paragraph. The focus of the board is on moving this project forward in a manner that is productive and respectful. From this perspective, the board finds Mayor Locke's comments extremely disappointing. The board will continue to fully support Chief Lipinski's team in their efforts to achieve police of jurisdiction status as per 
the provincial government. So then I guess it's on the provincial government to communicate with the federal government about what needs to shift so that the RCMP mandate can then dovetail, I guess, for lack of a better word, with with the SPS mandate. Yes, and and I think it's important to note that we all have a role to play of that relationship between the provincial government and the federal government is integral because of the contract services from a federal police agency, the RCMP, to a a municipality and the uh, provincial government essentially being in the middle of that. So it's it's complicated um, is probably the only way to describe it. But again, to get through the complicated matters, we have to get to the table. We have to start hashing them out. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. We're continuing our discussions about policing in Surrey because the saga and the drama continues in that fastest growing city, one of the largest cities in our country, and where law enforcement is really at a crossroads. From the provincial perspective, obviously done deal, transition, Surrey Police Services, here we go. And yet it is stalling at every turn. Uh, the mayor, uh, of Surrey, Brenda Locke, clearly, uh, with every opportunity, states how there is really no path forward unless it's an RCMP path, even with the public safety minister and solicitor general saying, okay, enough of this. It's mandated. We're moving forward with the municipal police and transitioning away from RCMP. It's very complex and complicated, as you may or may not have heard with our uh, interview just prior to the news to 1.30 uh, with Melissa Granham, who's the executive director of the Surrey Police Board. Um, and I want to unpack further on this because I'm bringing in a, a guest here who's a retired RCMP major crime investigator and investigative consultant. His name is Bruce Pitt Payne. And I want to get um, some perspective here because Bruce is very active, uh, particularly on his LinkedIn, on this subject matter. And it's a fascinating point of view as a retired RCMP. Bruce, thanks for doing this. Oh, no worries, Jody. Good to talk to you. Let's start with the letter that the Surrey Police Board put out this morning, uh, basically just saying that they're very concerned with public comments made by Surrey Mayor and Chair of the Police Board, Brenda Locke. Yeah, I I watched the comments actually uh, from a clip, and it concerned me as well that the stalling seems to continue. It appears to be, um, I don't have, uh, this is the mayor, she doesn't have confidence uh, in the Surrey Police Board or the SPS Chief Lipinski, um, yet she's not making a decision. She's now sort of casting aspersions everywhere, but still not making a decision. If she wants to fight this, fight it on behalf of the city, but don't put it into stall mode and keep blaming Chief Lipinski for not being able to climb the hill. So, Bruce, what, what, do you, what is your view here? What, what do you see unfolding thus far in the drama that is policing in Surrey? Well, the first part, uh, it started with bickering. Then it got embarrassing, frankly, uh, where people had contacted me saying, what is going out there in your province? Um, It's a concern that uh, there does need to be some strong leadership right now. This is a done deal. It has been uh, uh, made very clear that the RCMP will soon not be the police force of jurisdiction and the SPS will. And again, leadership shows that 
Yeah, you can posture for a little bit. I can see that the mayor and council has to save face. It was the only issue on their platform was keeping the RCMP. But if it continues to stall and they just are obstructionist and they don't become true leaders, civic leaders, and help the SPS, don't just sit there and hope that they can figure it out. Actually help SPS, which is what leaders are paid to do. This is just going to go on, and I think the province will have to make another decision. Not not to wow. counter what they already said, but to actually put their no. foot down here. Yeah, they're going to have to. They're going to have to force the issue. I I I, I fear, and and yet mm-hmm. you know, like you said, leadership here is is the key, and, and collaboration is the hope. Yes. This delay is also it must be said, and from your perspective as a re- retired RCMP major crime investigator and investigative consultant, this delay yeah. has got to be taking its toll on all of the officers, SPS or RCMP. Well, this is the sad part, Jody is. Uh, the RCMP members, and I, I should have said this right off the bat, the RCMP members and the SPS members are second to none. And the boots on the ground are second to none. The province and everybody involved is not saying that the RCMP is horrible or its members are horrible. Surrey needs a change because Surrey has changed. The expectations have changed. They are a major metropolis and the police work is different. What's happening, unfortunately, is with all of the bickering, people are starting to pick sides and actually disparaging the members. And that should never happen. Right. So what should happen, Bruce? What, what should happen now or next? Well, what should happen is the province has made it very clear that the province itself and the policing in the province should not suffer or fall into crisis mode uh, in order just to save the RCAP in Surrey. That's really what they've said. Um, And with that, the leadership in Surrey must get on board. And number one, for the cost, exorbitant costs of the taxpayer, act like leaders and help Chief Lipinski get everything done that was stalled or actually some of it was destroyed, some of the policy and procedures that they had to work with in the agreements, it ended with the stalling. They need to get back on track, do it now, take any help they can get, but act like a leader. In an office, a leader goes and says, how can I help you? Not, I'm going to disparage you at meetings and cut everybody down and continue the pain and agony. They've got to do their job or... Mayor Locke has to say, my, my crew and myself cannot do this or we're not willing. And frankly, get out of the game and let somebody do it. It's got to happen or somebody's going to get hurt eventually. When you say get out of the game, are you saying if Brenda Locke can't move this forward, she should resign? If she is choosing not to move it forward. Uh, perfection isn't what we're asking for or what I'm looking at. But as a, a person that lives in this province, who's, who, even in my city in Maple Ridge, the crime levels <laughs> ebb and flow with what happens in Surrey sometimes, it is an important decision that Mayor Locke has to make. Either help them get on board with Surrey Police and help Chief Lipinski with anything possible Or, yes, I think she should turn over the reins and resign and say, I am unwilling to do this. But 
inaction is action, and it's a dangerous, dangerous inaction that she's playing with right now. Uh, they need a solid, robust, healthy police agency in that municipality, and she needs to help it along. We're with Bruce Pitt Payne, retired RCMP major crime investigator and investigative consultant. Um, we're discussing the, the 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 seeming loggerheads that we have reached here between the the city of Surrey and the mayor uh, of Surrey, Brenda Locke, uh, the the Surrey Police Board, the the provincial government, and the public safety minister and, and solicitor general. Uh, just can these uh, parties all ultimately come together? Can they can they work together? Can can the RCMP and SPS work together at some point, or is has it become so acrimonious and and politicized, as you said, sides being taken here um, that it might be impossible to do that? I, I think feelings have been hurt, egos have been bruised, but I do believe in the professional of the OIC Edwards and Chief Lipinski, and I think that they can work together but only under the professional, solid leadership given by mayor and council. If the mayor and council is still fractured uh, in their beliefs, the overall council, and they're still fighting this, then I would assume that the RCMP will still hope that there's a chance of remaining, and they don't have to work as hard then uh, to reconcile these differences. Uh, I hope they're, they're all mature enough to actually deal with this now, um, and in fact, I, it, it's sort of amazing that the federal government hasn't stepped in and told the RCMP, back off, let it happen, work with them. Yeah. All right. Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett, still with Bruce Pitt Payne, retired RCMP major crime investigator and investigative consultant. And Bruce, prior to the break, you were talking about um, the need for maybe the federal government to get involved in what is unfolding or l- stalled in Surrey with regard to the transition to municipal policing there. Are we getting, you said that your, your, your friends, your former colleagues within the RCMP were asking you when, when the noise from BC started to get louder in Surrey, asking you what's going on in your province there. Um, Is it, is it reaching the top ranks? Oh, I'm sure it is. And I, I just feel that they could, put some certainty back into this equation. Um, They must have an opinion on it, the federal government, as to whether they will keep playing and supporting Surrey, playing is the wrong word, but supporting Surrey RCMP in their attempts to stay the police force of jurisdiction. Um, They actually could have a say in it, and they could end this uh, by taking the wind away from Mayor Locke and crew by just saying Surrey RCMP has accepted the fact that the province has not uh, is not willing to keep them on. So we will be telling them to work hard and work with Surrey uh, Police Service to do the transition. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it? Indeed, we're hearing all kinds of rumors that there are roadblocks being put up actually internally to keep qualified officers, SPS officers off the street. The RCMP allegedly not wanting SPS to get a foothold in Surrey. Yeah, I've heard that as well. And I have to be honest, I don't know how much is rumor, how much is partisan banter. Uh, But I can tell you that watching that council meeting the other night, 
uh, the Marin Council, many of them were very clear about showing their, I'm going to say it was disrespect for the SPS and the chief, uh, but also they were still, in a subtle way, they were getting across false information just by repeatedly asking the same questions. For example, council was extremely confused, despite having it explained clearly by the chief, on the role of two-person cars. Or they kept disparaging the SPS by saying that they were working from home as opposed to being deployed or being in an office. And I thought that was a sad statement that they would keep doing that in a public forum when they should be at this point supporting the transition. There's a lot of disinformation floating around, isn't there? And and, and adding yeah. fuel to that does does a disservice because, Bruce, historically, let's let's speak historically here. As a retired RCMP, you know how this unfolds. You've seen yeah. transitions happen in the past. This can be done, and it can be done in a in a a more straight line approach than what we're seeing in Surrey. Fair to say? Yeah, uh, absolutely, Jody. Uh, I'm going to cite the example of Abbotsford Police Force, uh, not Force Police Department. We'll get into the modern terminology. Um, they turned over from what used to be an RCMP detachment and also an adjacent, uh, I think it was Matsqui Police Department, and they formed Abbotsford Police Department, and there just wasn't this problem. Uh, Grand Prairie is going through the same transition as, as the, I believe, largest RCMP detachment. So you can see the similarity here. The other, another province with their largest detachment saying, hey, listen, we have no problem with the Mounties, but they're not the sort of governance, not the system that we want right now for our city. And they now have a police board and a police chief, and we're not hearing all this negativity and fighting and obstruction that Mayor Locke and her crew have imposed on Surrey. There are certain talking points that come into play too, right? I'm even getting texts from from people listening right now saying, see, there's no plan. There's no plan. There is a plan, yes. but the, the activation of that plan was paused yeah. and it expired because they put an expiry date on to make sure, like, let's get moving on this. So, I mean, it'd be exactly. fairly simple to get everybody back at the table and go, same plan? Yeah, okay, yeah, let's go. With Continue on. With, with leadership, municipal leadership, they could get everybody at the table and they could get back on track. And you're very correct in this is uh, there was a plan and Chief Lipinski didn't stop the plan. It was because of the election, then the uncertainty, then the different views and everything expired and everything became outdated. It was no longer current. So kudos to anyone that wants to say, listen, we need a current plan based on what's happening now. We're not just going to make a mess of this. Times have changed over the last couple of years in this mayhem. Um, This is the equivalent of Chief Lipinski right now trying to climb up some stairs, which is his goal, push down the stairs and having the people that push them down the stairs saying, why didn't you make it to the top? this is what it strikes me as it's time for working together only got like 30 seconds here one more question for you if i may it is only Mm going to get more expensive the longer this is delayed yeah fair to say absolutely um 
It is. It's showing that already. Um, I'm not going to tell Surrey what to do or the taxpayers, but I think that when the bill does come in, if this is prolonged, I think somebody should look and say, hey, listen, should we really uh, blame the SPS and the chief of SPS, or should we blame the people that prolonged the inevitable? Because of whatever reason, egos, it was their mandate, it doesn't matter. The ruling's been made, move on. Bruce Pitt-Payne, thank you for taking some time and giving us your perspective. As a retired RCMP major crime investigator, you've you've lived this experience yeah. of serving and protecting, and we appreciate you, and we appreciate all the law enforcement officers of every jurisdiction yes. in what they do, and, and we feel we feel for those who have no certainty in what's next for them, and, and at the root of all of the politics of this, there are people. And uh, yes. and we appreciate you you giving them your perspective. I think clearing up some of the disinformation. Hundred percent. To Bruce. all the Mounties yeah. out there, hold your head pride. It's not about you. It's about change. It's about change. Thank you for your time, sir. Appreciate you. Thank you. Bye now. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till three on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening. Season of 911 on a new night, Thursday, March 14th, on Global. Stream on Stack TV.